Anyway, today we're starting session four of our Master Gardening for Your Soul. And as Kathy already prayed, our prayer is that the garden of our heart, which is our soul, many times when the Bible uses the word heart, that's what it's referring to. We are made of spirit and soul and body. When we make the choice to accept Jesus' sacrifice, to believe and receive that he died for us, that he rose from the dead for us, that our sin was completely remitted, when we choose to believe that and receive it, our spirit is perfected. We're going to talk a lot about that today. But our soul and our body aren't. The scripture that I love to start with, our, our foundational scripture, is about our heart. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And this says, Now may the God of peace make you holy, consecrated, set apart. That's what holy means. Consecrated and set apart in every way. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. Kept blameless means carefully tended and taken care of. So this scripture in the next verse says, God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. So this scripture says God himself will help in the gardening of our heart. But we have a part to play too. God's given us a free will. So we have a part to come into communion with God, to come into agreement with what he's already done and to let him work in our heart to let him work in our soul. Last week, I was uh, starting this, the, the root of lies. So far, we've dealt with two roots, two bad roots that can be in the garden of our heart that God wants to get out of there. He wants good, healthy stuff planted, not yuck, not weeds, not thorns, not thistles, not, not uh yuck that's bad for us so we've talked so far about two bad roots the first one was wounding where you've been hurt from the outside the second one is lies where because of the life that you've lived because of stuff that you've lived through you have believed a lie usually you don't know you've believed a lie but you have now what i shared last week that i want to review just a teeny bit of is that the lie comes from the enemy he's the author of lies but when Jesus took our sin on his cross and nailed our sin to his cross and died with our sin and then took, him, took, him, took all that yuck away from us, remitted our sins, when he did that, the enemy was stripped of his authority to accuse us. He was stripped of all power and authority. But the problem is, if we don't know that, he will try to influence us to take his bait, his lies. And when we do, we're giving him power. He doesn't have any unless we give it to him, unless we take the bait. So the enemy's plan, his goal, his purpose is to deceive us. That's why we're talking about deception today. That's why we're talking about lies. So his plan is to deceive us. And when he deceives us, fruit Lessness is the result. Not having fruit in your life. Or even worse yet, having bad fruit. Like sickness. Or lack or disease or whatever. Pain. So deception leads to fruitlessness or bad fruit. And, and his, his, prime result, his prime 
purpose is to get us separated from God. Because we're so focused on ourselves that we're separated from God. That's his goal is to separate us. And that he knows hurts God. He can't hurt God except through us. God loves us so much. Think about your own children. If somebody hurts your kids, it hurts you. If something hurts your kids, if your children are hurting in any reason, you're hurting. The same with Abba. And the enemy knows that. That's why he's oppressive. That's why he's deceptive. God's purpose, on the other hand, is the truth. That we would know the truth. He says in the word that when we know the truth, that word know doesn't mean here. Knowing God's truth is to interact with his truth, to encounter him, to be, um, uh, to know him in us, to have that, that communion with him. And when we come to know his truth in that way, then fruitfulness is the result. Jesus came for us to live a rich and a satisfying life. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus wants us to have a fruitful life. And when we know his truth, and the truth sets us free of junk, like woundedness or lies, then the direct result is communion and even more intimacy with God. And that blesses God so much. I can say through experience that I've lived through fruitlessness and no connection with God into fruitfulness and a very close connection with God. And believe me, it's much better this way. Much better. It's a joy-filled, rich, satisfying kind of life. So, last week, if you weren't here, please go and listen to the teaching. Because I I was teaching in general about lies, specific kinds of ways that the enemy deceives us. I talked about false truths, which can grow into mindsets. And these mindsets determine our actions. They determine our attitudes. They determine actions. They determine our life if we let them. Those mindsets, though, can be revised. They can be edited, God, godly, divine editing. Another thing we talked about were colored lenses. Colored lenses happen when we look through the experience of life and let the experience of life color the truth in a way that it's really not true anymore. So, for example, I teach through the word, that it is God's will to heal. But in life, you may have seen somebody who's very, very strong in their walk that didn't receive healing. So because of that colored lens, you change your thinking. It, it skews your perspective to say, well, maybe it's not God's will to heal, even though that's what the Bible clearly shows us. So that's a colored lens lie. The third lie is called crafty suggestions. Crafty suggestions are the enemy masquerades as the angel of light. So he can make things look really pretty when they really are putrid. An example of that that I shared last week was pornography. Pornography seems harmless. You're not having immorality for real. So it looks harmless. Nobody needs to know about it. But it can be absolutely destructive. 
to your soul, to your life, to your marriage, to, 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 to just everything. So that's a crafty suggestion. So I talked about all of that last week. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on one um, area of lies that is so very big and so very critical. I wanted to spend a whole session on it. This, lie, this series of lies kind of goes in degrees. It starts out with the lie of condemnation. It moves from condemnation into the lie of unworthiness. And then if you buy that and allow it to become a stronghold in your life, it can become self-hatred. So we're going to talk about each of those levels, and we're going to talk about um, possible fruit, what it might look like in your life, and we're, going to, and we're going to look at how to get that thing healed because Jesus has a much better plan for us. Amen. So the first part of this lie is the deception of condemnation. I want to biblically define the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is not good. Condemnation is of the enemy, of the devil. It's a lie. Condemnation is produced through sin consciousness. So if your focus is on your sin, if your focus, even as a believer, as a, as a daughter or a son, a father, even as a believer, if your focus is on how you miss it and the sin in your life, then condemnation is the result. Here are some symptoms of condemnation. You try to hide from the sin problem. You do it in secret or you hide from it or you hide it. You wander aimlessly without purpose or direction as how to fix the sin problem. Even if you're remorseful, you say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I keep doing this and I'm so sorry. And even if you're repentant, if you fall on your face in repentance, condemnation doesn't go away. Even through remorse and repentance, you still have that it's oppression. It's demonic. I'm going to talk about that in a sec. But it doesn't go away. You can't quench the condemnation. You may question God's ability to love you because of the condemnation. How could God love me? I don't think he can. You may feel guilty. Guiltiness doesn't come from God. You may experience confusion or brain fog. Those are physical um, uh, manifestations of condemnation. Confusion in your thinking, confusion, feeling like your brain is foggy, like you just can't process things. Condemnation drives you away from intimacy with God. Remember when I just mentioned the, the enemy's purpose with, with deception and fruitlessness and being driven away from God? That's what condemnation does. Condemnation is the counterfeit of conviction. When you, when you feel something, the lie of condemnation, it is a counterfeit of something that's very good that God has for us that's conviction. So what is the difference? What's conviction? First of all, conviction is from God. Conviction is, uh, well, let me, let me go in order of my notes. 
Conviction is produced by righteousness consciousness. I know that the blood of Jesus cleansed me of all sin. I know it it removed sin. It eliminated sin from me. And because of that, not because of how good I am or how bad I am, but because of that, I'm righteous. I know I'm righteous. I thank God every day for the gift of righteousness. My conscious, I think about it. I'm focused on it. And because of my righteousness consciousness, when I do miss it, when I do blow up and get mad or frustrated or lose my patience or, or whatever, I feel conviction. If I'm not kind or loving, if I have a phone call and I'm short with that person, I feel conviction. Conviction is good. Conviction is God's still small voice. And it's gentle and it's loving. It's never vague or confusing. When I um, have one-on-one inner healing ministry, I usually do it in my home. And when I'm telling people about it before they come, I always give them this information. I say, it's so gentle and loving. Now, in the, mid- in the midst of the inner healing, God often reveals stuff in you. Maybe he reveals unforgiveness. Maybe he reveals a lie. Maybe he reveals a deep wound. Maybe he reveals a big sin issue. But whatever he does, it isn't condemning. It is loving. It is gentle. And there's so much love in it that it doesn't feel yucky at all. It feels really good. And then God takes it, forgives, of course. He's already forgiven, but he lets you know that it's forgiven. Lifts it, removes it, replaces it with something beautiful. Beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. Like Isaiah 61 says, that's what he does. He replaces, he trades up. It's beautiful. That's conviction. Conviction causes you to run to face the problem instead of hiding from it. And it's not difficult. It's not, you don't feel guilty. You don't feel dirty. You don't feel yucky. You just know God's there to take care of it. And it's awesome. And when you've dealt with it, when you've gone to God, the conviction leaves. That, that sense, that, that check in your spirit leaves. And you feel this ama- immense love and, and peace. The result of conviction is strengthening your relationship with God. Conviction draws you to God and into intimacy with him. See the difference? The big difference between condemnation and conviction. So this first lie, the lie of condemnation, is when you buy the first part, the condemnation part. What I want to do is I want to show you two scriptures that give us biblical evidence that we have been freed from condemnation because of Jesus' blood. The first one is Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. And this is what it says. Therefore, there now, there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him as personal Lord and Savior. 
For the law of the spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the law of our new being, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So according to the scripture, when we believed in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, at that moment, we, we switched. Something switched. We, there's no longer condemnation. That's what it says. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who believe. And then it goes on and it says we've moved. We have moved from the, uh, the, from, mm, for the law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. Law of sin and death was old covenant law when there was a sacrificial system, when sin was only covered, it wasn't removed. We're now under the law of life. The law of life is New Testament grace. The focus of grace is love and acceptance. The focus of the law of sin and death is sin and exclusion or division, guilt. So we've been, we've been, we've moved from one into the other. And now as believers, there's no condemnation. The next scripture I want to share is Romans 5, 16. And let me just recommend this whole book of the Bible, Romans 5, because this book shows us the difference between um, the sin of Adam and the fall of man and what happened as a result and the redemption of Jesus and what happened as a result. And one of the phrases that's used in the fifth chapter many times is, how much more? When it talks about Jesus and what he accomplished for us and what was changed from um, the fall of man to the redemption of man, it keeps saying, how much more? Jesus did so much more than what that sin accomplished. So anyway, I just picked one verse, 516, and listen to this. Nor is the gift of grace like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, the judgment following the sin resulted from one trespass and brought condemnation. That's the sin of man. When man fell, authority was given over to the enemy. The enemy had power and authority to accuse us, to condemn us, and to say, you deserve judgment. And we did deserve judgment. That happened with the fall of man. But on the other hand, the free gift resulted from many trespasses and brought justification. The release from sin's penalty for those who believe. So on the other hand, the one hand is the fall of man and condemnation. But on the other hand, because of the free gift. And notice the free gift is was because of all the trespasses, many trespasses, many sins, all sin of all men and women from all time. The gift of grace, the gift that Jesus paid for with his own body and blood, paid the price for justification. And it says in the Amplified, it says, which is the release from sin's penalty for those who believe. So what I want to do is I want to just dig a little deeper into what those two words mean, condemnation and justification. The word condemnation is a judicial decision. It's a damnatory sentence. 
It means guilty as charged. And it results in punishment, judgment. And in that place of condemnation is unworthiness. And in condemnation, in the old covenant, you really were unworthy because of your sin. There was a sin barrier. No matter how hard you tried to follow the law, you weren't going to completely do it. And the Bible says if you miss a letter of the law, you've broken the whole law. If you even think uh, an impure thought, you've sinned. That's what the Bible says. So there was no way to follow everything in the law. There, you just, we humanly couldn't do it. We had a sin nature. We couldn't do it. So we deserved the punishment. And we were unworthy. But when we made the choice to believe in Jesus, to accept him as our Lord and our Savior, we were justified because of the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice is the potential for all, but it's only actual when you receive Jesus. It only becomes yours when you say, I believe, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe in what you did for me. That's when we were reborn. And justification was the gift. Justification is also a judicial decision. But this time, instead of a guilty as charged, this is a favorable judgment, a good judgment, where God acquits us. He acquits us and declares us acceptable to him. Acquittal means to be legally set free from the charge of the offense. The good news is we really deserved the punishment, but we were acquitted and all of the charge was removed. And the reason was because sin was taken away from us. It was no longer part of us. So we were then repositioned and, and made worthy. We can't do it on our own. Our worthiness comes from Jesus. He is the source of our worthiness. So the first level of this lie we're talking about is unworthiness. You may not, in the natural, you know, looking at you, you may not look worthy on the outside. But if you're a believer, your spirit is perfected. And you are worthy, not because of you, but because of Jesus. So the next level of this lie that I want to dig into is the deception of unworthiness. If you've bought the condemnation, received it, ate it, said that's who I am, then it may have spiraled into this, this lie that you are unworthy. So the first thing I want to do is I want to show you two biblical accounts. There are many. If you read the Bible with the lens of looking for, for God's um, looking beyond sin, looking beyond unworthiness and seeing how he treats the people, you'll see it all over the Bible, all over the Gospels. I'm going to share two accounts with you right now. The first one is the account of Jesus with the adulterous woman. What I want you to pay attention to is that these two accounts that I'm sharing happened before Jesus shed his blood for us, before we were redeemed. But Jesus, even before he paid the price, was pointing us to the heart of the Father. He was showing us the will of God, even before we were redeemed. 
through his sacrifice. So here's the first example. It starts in John chapter 8 with verse 2. Now early in the morning, he came, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now the scribes and the Pharisees were the leaders of the church. They were the ones who upheld the law. There was the Mosaic law, and the law had lots and lots of rules and regulations. And based on behaviors, based on sin, based on breaking the law, there were punishments. So they, they, they looked at the situation, they looked at the law, and then they determined what to do. And that's what they were doing. So they brought with him this woman who was caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded that such should be stoned. See, that was the punishment. She was condemned. Next came punishment or judgment. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the last. Notice it says they were convicted. Remember we talked the difference about condemnation and conviction. Their heart, their conscience was convicted. Conviction is a good thing. Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This woman was unworthy. She had been caught in the very act of adultery, and it was punishable by being stoned to death. The people that had brought her, Jesus called them accusers. The word accusers in the Greek is Categoros, and it means Satan. It's the name, the Greek name for Satan. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. The, the, the job of the accuser, we can liken it to a prosecuting attorney. The job of the accuser or of Satan is to uphold the letter of the law. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. The prosecuting attorney doesn't talk about your good points. All that the prosecutor does is show evidence of your sin, evidence of your failure, and then attempts to prosecute you for, prosecute you for your failure. So that's what the enemy does if you are being accused. If, remember last week, and I, I mentioned it already today, that Jesus was stripped of his power to accuse you. He no longer has the power unless you give it to him. That's what was happening to this woman. She was being accused. All of her faults were out there for everybody to see. And not only her faults, but okay, what are we going to do about it? What is the punishment? But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no, 
I don't condemn you either. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus was like the defense attorney. Jesus was the one that was, that was his goal was to look at the, the gold, the value, the worth, and to acquit her. That's what he did. He set her free from all the charges of the offense. She did the offense. She was caught in the very act. But she was acquitted. This is a picture of what was to come for all of us through the death and and resurrection of Jesus. The next example I want to share with you is Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples that was called by Jesus into his ministry. One of the 12, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus called 12 disciples who became his apostles. Matthew was one of them. I think it's interesting that Matthew wrote this account. When I think of that, think of this man who was a tax collector. Tax collectors were really hated. They were despised. They were Jewish people who had sold out to their culture and collected taxes for the Roman government, which was very corrupt. And they were allowed to to collect more than what the government needed or asked for, so then they became rich. So it was basically a a self-promoting to become rich kind of occupation. They were hated. They were excluded from the people of God. Even though they were Jewish, they were excluded. They were lumped together along with the worst of sinners, harlots, Gentiles, non-believers, idolatrous, the worst sinners, they were lumped together. They were excluded. Matthew was one of those people. And Jesus, when he was choosing his 12 closest allies, he chose Matthew. Scripture starts, I'm going to start reading in chapter 9 with verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. He didn't exclude Matthew. He called him to him. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, here we go again. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to go to that, that quote that Jesus tells us to figure out what it means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The word sacrifice comes from the sacrificial system, the Old Testament, the Old Testament system of law. The emphasis was on the power of sin and exclusion. So under that, Matthew would not have been called because he was a sinner. 
So he, because of the power of the sin and the, the yuckiness of his sin and the unworthiness of this man, he would have been excluded. Oh, no, he would not have been called. But Jesus said, that's not what I desire. I desire mercy. Mercy is mean. Mercy means that we do not get what we deserve. Matthew didn't deserve to be one of the 12 because of the sin in his life. But he didn't get what he did deserve. Instead, he got grace. Grace is a gift. Grace means we get something amazing that we don't deserve. He is, he has a book in the Bible. He was an apostle of Jesus. He was one of the 12. He didn't deserve that. He was gifted grace and mercy. This is a picture of New Testament grace. And the emphasis isn't on sin and exclusion. The emphasis is on the power of love and acceptance. And Jesus was showing us that. I'm reading the book of Luke right now at home. And one of the things that I'm seeing is how Jesus so often ministered to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, to the sinners, to the people who weren't part of the chosen race. And this was before um, the sacrifice had been paid. This was when, when the chosen ones were only the Jewish people. But yet Jesus was showing us what was to come. He was showing us that he was the God of mercy, the God of inclusion, the God of love. So what I wanted to show you, we're talking about the lie of unworthiness, and I wanted to show you what Jesus did. I always like to go to Jesus' example. But now I want to answer a question. This is a theological question. It means a study of what the Bible says. The question is, why are we worthy? Cindy, you're telling me I'm worthy. You're telling me that unworthiness is a lie, even if I'm a mess, even if I'm a hot mess, even if I sin, even if I am a wreck, even if I live a life of whatever, the worst depravity that you can imagine. If I'm a believer, I'm worthy. So the question is why? I'm going to give you two big pieces of evidence. The first one is you are worthy because you've been forgiven. Under the old covenant, sin was atoned for. You see the word atonement on your sheet. Atonement happened when the sacrificial system was, was enacted and an animal, a perfect, a perfect uh, uh, unblemished lamb or a perfect unblemished animal was, was killed and the blood that was shed was poured out for sin. It was only a covering though. And it had to be done repeatedly over and over and over and over again. There was still a sin barrier. Sin was covered. There was kind of a halfway, halfway um, uh, uh, restitution. But the sin barrier was still there. There was still a sin issue. But the new covenant instituted something much better than atonement. And it's called remission. Remission replaced atonement. I don't use the word atonement for what Jesus did for me because it's way more. Remission is something much better than atonement. 
When Jesus shed his blood, he became that perfect lamb, the perfect, unblemished lamb of God. And when he died for us, when he shed his blood for us, he completely conquered sin. When a person is born again, sin is eliminated. It's not just covered or hidden. It's eliminated. And when Jesus shed his blood, he completely conquered sin once and for all. With the old system, it had to be done over and over and over. Not with Jesus. Guys, if you believe the lie of unworthiness, you're saying Jesus has to keep dying for you. He only had to die once. Once for all. He paid it all. Once and for all. That barrier, that sin barrier that was between us was removed. Sin was removed. I point here because the spirit part of me was made perfect. Sin was removed. If you could see my spirit, it would be pure. I used to, when I was a kid and I went to confession, I would envision a, a board with all the sin written on it and getting it erased. I didn't know the real truth. The real truth is that when I was born again, it was erased. And I don't have a blackboard. I have a whiteboard in me. <laughs> it's white. And, and it doesn't have any leftover marker on it. It's gone. It's sparkling. And it will always be that way. Because the sin has been completely eliminated. So the sin barrier is no longer there. Now Jesus took our sin into his body. He destroyed sin. But that wasn't even his primary purpose. His primary purpose was reconciliation to God. And we couldn't have that reconciliation until the sin got out of the way because there was a barrier between us and God. Remember, back to the enemy's purpose, deception, fruitlessness, and division. But it's all a lie because if you're a born-again believer, you have truth, you have fruitfulness, and you have reconciliation to God, communion with God completely one with God. There's nothing separating us. When Jesus died, the temple curtain, which was 18 feet and thick and heavy, was torn into from heaven to earth, from top to bottom. It was an it was God showing us that that veil was torn. There's no longer any division. We have complete access into the Holy of Holies, to the throne of grace, because sin is no longer an issue. Forgiveness is remission. We need to know that. You need to know what forgiveness is. Let me read two scriptures, and I'm going to go a little bit deeper here. Matthew 26, verse 27 through 28. This is when Jesus was instituting the Last Supper. He took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So Jesus is telling us, he's saying, this, this, this is because I'm going to die. I'm going to shed my blood. It's going to institute the new covenant. My blood will ratify the covenant. 
through remission of sin. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The word forgiveness in that scripture is the same Greek word as the word remission. It's the word, the Greek word, aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S. Jesus shed his blood for our redemption. He paid the ransom with his blood. And he did that so that sin would no longer be a barrier. And we have the grace of God as a result, the free gift. So remission of sin means pardon of sin. Letting sin go as if they'd never been committed. Release from the penalty. Cancellation of the debt that we owed. Think about a person who's on death row. They have committed a grievous crime. They're on death row. They're set to be executed. And then they're pardoned. The penalty of the death sentence has been stayed or halted or canceled and they can live. That's what Jesus did for us. When our sins were remitted, we were reconciled unto God. The death sentence stopped. Remember it said in Romans 1 or Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, it said that we, have, we are now under the law of life. We're no longer under the law of sin and death. Yes, our physical bodies will someday die, but spiritually we will live forever. Death has no victory. Amen. So we have been forgiven. The second part that I want to talk about, about our worthiness, as a result of being forgiven, we are made righteous. We are made righteous. First, or Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This was a divine exchange. Jesus became sin for us. He took and, did, and took sin into his body on the cross. That's what First Peter 2.24 says. He died. He was crucified. He was resurrected. So were we in the spiritual realm. And then there was this divine exchange. We were the sinners. We were the one with all the sin. He was the righteous one. But then he took our sin and we became righteous. There was this amazing divine exchange that took place. Righteousness defined. It is the gracious gift of God. It's a free gift. Whereby all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are brought into unbroken fellowship with God. It's this gift. Because sin barrier is no longer there, we have this free gift of righteousness and unbroken fellowship. Nothing can ever break that fellowship again. We will always have free access to the throne of grace. Always. Righteousness is unattainable by obedience to the law, 
You know, okay, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to whatever it is. I'm not going to do it. No matter how good you are at not sinning, it will not purchase your righteousness. You can't earn um, righteousness through your own merit. In other words, by being a good person. Before I was saved, when Jenny asked me if I was saved, that was my response. I said, well, I think so. I'm a good person. And then I gave some other reasons why I thought I was saved, but that was one of them. Being a good person doesn't purchase your righteousness. Neither do your works. Mission trips, giving money to the poor, whatever, working at the soup kitchen, that's not going to earn your righteousness. Righteousness is based entirely upon believing and receiving what Jesus did. It's Jesus' works. It's not ours. Righteousness is not something we have. It's something we are. It is our state of being. It's literally who I am. Like I said, if you could see my spirit, it would be a big whiteboard that's sparkling white. It's who I am from the inside out, from the outside in. Even when I am a grump, even when I'm yelling at Kent, That whiteboard is still perfect. That's good news. (laughs) Our spirit, the spirit part of us is the part that's perfected. We've talked about that a lot in here. That's why we're dealing with a soul. That's why we're dealing with a body, because it isn't so perfect. It's getting better and better and better, though, isn't it? So here's an important question. Did Jesus die in vain for you? You might listen to that question and say, Cindy, what are you talking about? Of course he didn't die in vain. He paid too big of a price. If you're believing the lie of unworthiness, if you are taking that bait of the enemy, that deception of the enemy, then Jesus did die in vain for you because you're not accepting what he died for, which is worthiness. I'm going to show you evidence of what I'm saying right now in a scripture. This is Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So let me explain this a little bit. It says, I don't set aside the grace of God. That means, like I've already just spent a lot of time talking about, it means that all the punishment that we deserved was upon Jesus. It means payment was paid in full, and now we have this free gift We have remission, where all sin has been eliminated, the sin barrier is gone, and we have righteousness. That's the grace of God. I don't set that aside and choose the law. This law thing that the scripture says means that we live in a state of sin consciousness, even though we're righteous. We can still do that. We can buy the lie. And we can look at all the yuck that we do or the yuck in our life and say, oh, I'm not worthy because look at me. Look at what a mess I am. 
And if we buy that lie and we look at ourselves in the sin consciousness and we strive to get better, we strive to follow the letter of the law, then Jesus died in vain. Because the purpose that he died for, you're not accepting, you're not receiving, you're, you're feeding into that lie. Now let me tell you, that lie of unworthiness is selfish and it's prideful. You may feel like you're being humble, like you're saying, oh, this is how terrible I am and I'm acknowledging it and I'm, I'm, I'm repenting, I'm repenting, I'm repenting. But what you're actually doing is you're focusing on yourself. You're being self-centered. Jesus paid a big price. He died for you. He chose to die for you. And if you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm not worthy, it's as if you're saying, he didn't do enough and I have to do more. And that's a lie. It is prideful. It is a false sense of pride. A false, I'm sorry, it's a false sense of humility. It is pride. It's much more difficult to humbly receive forgiveness that we don't deserve because we didn't pay the price. We didn't take the judgment. It's called grace. We don't deserve it. It's much harder to humbly receive free forgiveness than it is to Stay in that place of sin and shame and unworthiness. When we do receive that free forgiveness, when we do acknowledge that we're righteous, the one who gave us that gift is honored. He's not honored when we say we're not worthy. He's not honored when we say we're not good enough. We are good enough. We are more. We are accepted. We are beloved. We are approved of. We are gold. We are diamonds. We are riches in God's kingdom. And if we see ourselves as anything less, God is not honored. So we're going to go to the third level now. The lie of condemnation can lead us into this wrong mindset of being unworthy. And if you are in this place of, of the whole mindset, the stronghold of unworthiness, behaviors, attitudes, your, your, the way you walk through life is all uh, through, the, through the, the lens of being unworthy. And the lowest level of this lie is self-hatred. Self-hatred is an anti-Christ spirit because we are made in the image of God. I feel a huge anointing right now. We are made in God's image. And if we hate ourselves, we are hating God's image in us. It's an anti-Christ spirit. It's against Christ. Here are some symptoms of self-hatred. You need others to affirm you. You need to have others tell you constantly good things about you. 
And if you're not receiving affirmation, you're thinking that they're thinking bad about you. You're not at peace when you're alone. You need noise in the house all the time. There's not a a self-peace with just who you are. So you need to fill the space with noise. TV, music, something. You just can't have quiet. You don't like your name. You speak negatively about yourself. You have difficulty making eye contact or hugging. You carry self-pity. You're self-centered or selfish. Here are some physical, possible, physical um, manifestations of this deception of self-hatred. The first one is chronic pain. Now, I'm not saying these absolutely are self-hatred, but they are possible bad fruits. There are other roots that could also cause these physical things, but this is one of them. Chronic pain. Chronic pain turns you inward and puts your focus on yourself. Chronic pain may have a root of unworthiness or self-hatred. Another one is autoimmune disorders or diseases. What's happening in the physical is reflecting what's happening in your soul. In your soul, you're hating yourself. Your body is turning against itself and destroying itself through this autoimmune disorder. Some of the autoimmune disorders that are out there are rheumatoid arthritis, all the myalgias, fibromyalgia, there's other ones too, Um, lupus, AIDS, um, emotion or environmental um, illness, EI it's called, environmental illness. Those are all autoimmune disorders and there's more. If you're fighting an autoimmune disorder, we're going to minister to this tonight. We're going to minister corporately to these kinds of things tonight. The third possible effect of self-hatred is self-destructive behavior. Things like eating disorders, either way, either anemia and bulimia, I'm sorry, anorexia and bulimia, or um, gluttony, that kind of thing, not taking care of yourself. Cutting, suicidal thoughts, or plans, or speaking. We're going to go into corporate ministry now, and this is what we're going to do. Is we're going to do it differently than we have the last couple of weeks because this is what God has shown me um, and through prayer. This is how he wants us to minister. We're not going to do a, a model up here tonight. I feel like this is too, um, not something we want to put on the stage. So we're not going to do that. Um, I'm going to talk through the, the, the steps, and these please don't think that you have to follow the steps, but this is just to guide you. Okay, so I'm going to go through this to help guide us. Then we're going to corporately pray. After that, we're going to move into a different part of the ministry. I'll tell you about that later. So let me just tell you the steps. First of all, again, like we have for every part of this inner healing, we go to God and let him reveal. I believe he's already been doing that as I've been sharing, as I've been teaching. 
He's probably already stirring in your heart. And that's a good thing. That's conviction. That's a good thing. That's the loving voice of God. So we're going to ask him and we're going to ask the question, Father God, am I believing the lie that I'm not worthy of your love? We can extend that question to say, am I believing the lie that I'm not worthy of your grace? Am I believing the lie that I'm not worthy of your healing? All of that's part of grace. So first of all, we're going to ask him. And if he says, yep, you're believing that lie, baby girl. Yep, you're believing that lie. Then we're going to say, where or when did I start believing it? Very often, the reason you believe that lie is because it's something you lived through or something that people told you or something that you witnessed in your parents, maybe living the same lie. And you bought the lie. There's usually a reason, and God will show it to you. We're going to have time to listen to God. Then we're going to ask God, do, who do I need to forgive? There may be somebody you need to forgive in order to give you freedom. When we, when we have hurts, maybe something that has caused you to buy this lie, we need to let go of the, of the wound and ask and, and give forgiveness as we have been forgiven. And that will give us freedom. Then we're going to renounce the lie. The word renounce means to formally declare that you no longer accept the lie. And we refuse to agree with it or partner with it any longer. So we're going to renounce the lie. And then ask God what he has for us in exchange. Okay? So that's the unworthiness part. And then we're going to do something very similar for the self-hatred part. You go to the next slide. So we're going to ask God, God, do I have low self-worth? Do I hate who I am? We're going to ask him. And guys, the first thing that comes to you, if you hear yes, then listen to God. (laughs) He loves you. If you hear no, then great but if you hear yes we're gonna we're gonna help you to to let go of that lie tonight and then we'll go through the same process god when did i start believing that lie show me the the bottom of the root show me the deep part so that you can help me get it out of there and heal it we're gonna ask him if there's anybody we need to forgive we're gonna renounce the lie and ask god what is your truth okay So we're going to go ahead and start the corporate ministry part right now. So I'm going to let Kent move over and turn on some um, soaking music. Please have your pen and your paper ready because as God reveals things to you, it's important that you write it down. You don't want to forget what he's giving to you. So Father... As we're preparing to to start this ministry time, I just pray, God, that we have ears to hear. I come against any spirit of deception that is trying to keep us from hearing you, God. I come against any deafness in the spiritual realm or blindness in the spiritual realm. And I declare right now that, that scales are lifted from our spiritual eyes and deafness is removed from our spiritual ears. And we hear you, God, as we ask you, as we press in and seek 
your voice as we as we desire to become free as we desire to receive healing in our soul right now so i ask this for everybody that's here in jesus name So the first thing I want you to ask in this quiet time is I want you to ask Father God if you're believing the lie that you are not worthy of his love. Now if you heard a yes, I want you to ask him, Say, Father, when did I start believing this lie? Show me when. Show me where. Show me what happened to cause me to believe that lie. with that event or that time of your life in your mind right now I want you to ask God say Father God who do I need to forgive and then just start speaking out your forgiveness in a very whisper just a whisper say I choose to forgive Maybe it's your dad. I choose to forgive my dad for modeling poor self-worth to me. I choose to forgive him for being uh, filled with self-pity or self-destruction. I choose to forgive him for speaking negatively and modeling that for me. Whatever it is, I don't want to put words in your mouth or your heart. Go ahead and start speaking out that forgiveness. Keep speaking it until you run out of words. this after me I release myself from all harm that was done to me by that person I let it go and I cancel the debt that they owed me to show me the gold in me to show me the value in me to approve of me to affirm me to love me and now I want you to repeat these these renunciations of lies with me say I renounce the lie 
that I am not worthy of your love, Father. I renounce the lie that I am not worthy of your grace. I renounce the lie that I am not worthy of your healing. I renounce the lie that I need to earn your love. I renounce the lie that I'm not good enough for you to love. I renounce the lie that I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. I renounce the lie that I have to earn your forgiveness. I renounce the lie that I'm not good enough for you to forgive. Father God, what is the truth? Does anybody have any truths that God shared with you that you would be willing to share with all of us? Yes, Mary. He loves you. He loves you. When I asked that question with you just now, I just saw this joy. This joy. This God was just ecstatic with joy. And he wants you to see that and know that as you've accepted his love and his approval. Yeah, God is good. Okay, we're going to go into the the second part of this. So again, I want you to just get quiet with God and ask him this question. Ask him, do I have a low self-worth? Do I hate who I am? And if you got a yes to either of those questions from God, just ask him in a quiet voice, say, God, when did I start hating myself? When did that happen? What part of my life did that start in? Show me, God. Show me the root. with that event or that time of your life in your mind, ask God, who do I need to forgive? And then start speaking out your forgiveness. With every word that's coming to you, let it out. Just whisper it, but let it out. There's power in our words. There's freedom and forgiveness. after me say I release myself 
from all harm that was done to me by that person. I let it go and I cancel all debt that was owed to me. And now we're going to renounce some more lies. Say, I renounce the lie that I am not accepted by you, God. Just receive that one. We need to say that again. I renounce the lie that you don't accept me. I renounce the lie that you don't approve of me. I renounce the lie that I am not loved. I renounce the lie that I am not lovable. I renounce the lie that I'm not good enough. I renounce the lie that I'm not as good. And I want you to put somebody in that blank that's in your head right now. I'm not as good as, and put that person in the, in the blank. I renounce that lie. I renounce poor self-worth. I renounce self-hatred. Father God, what is your truth? that wants to share a truth that God showed, showed to them that they would like to share with us. Yes. He has loved you with an everlasting love. I saw him just putting a crown on your heads. This is how God showed me to minister today. I'm going to um, name the same things I already named that are physical manifestations or possible physical manifestations of these lies that we've been believing, that we may have been believing. Don't do anything until I speak them all out, okay? Because I don't want you to be in any way embarrassed. So don't do anything. After I speak them all out, if you're dealing with any one of them, I want you to take a bold step and I want you to come to the front and I'm going to anoint you with oil. This is what God directed me to do. In the Thessalonian scripture, it says that God himself has sanctified us. God himself has made us holy. He has consecrated us us unto himself 
And I, just as I was praying about it, I believe God wants me to anoint you with oil, which is a symbol of consecration. To know that you are worth his love. You are worthy. You are approved. You are accepted. And that lie, we have, we have taken the first step, guys, of rebuking that lie, renouncing the lie. But in order for that lie to become truth, I'm sorry, for, in order for the truth to be firmly established and that lie to be discarded, we need to meditate on the truth. It takes a while. If you've been believing a lie, I'm 58. If I've been believing a lie for 58 years, it takes a while to replace it. So I'm, I'm just doing what God said. I'm consecrating you unto God in a position who you are, holy, consecrated to him, worthy. As you take the truths that you've started to hear from him about tonight, meditate on that. The lie will be forever extinguished and the truth will truly set you free. But you have a part to play. You can't walk out this room and say, this is a magic trick, because it isn't. You need to believe the truth. Feed yourself with truth. Ask God for scriptural word that gives you the truth that you are worthy. There's a lot in our, in that we, that you can pull right from this teaching that you are worthy. There's no condemnation. Whatever it is, take that scripture, meditate on it, speak it out loud. And, and continue to renounce the lie. That's not me, God. That's not me. I did that when I had cancer in my body. I had all kinds of evidence from the doctor. But I said, uh-uh, no cancer. Nope, I don't care what that doctor says. I don't care what I feel. No, cancer, no, you are not in my body. My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. I have the Holy Spirit of God living in me. So whatever it takes, speak it, speak it over and over and over and declare the truth to replace that lie. Okay. So, here are the things we talked about. Any chronic pain, any pain that has been ongoing, any um, autoimmune disorders, so any arthritis, any um, fibromyalgia or any other myalgias, any um, other autoimmune disorders, um, AIDS or lupus or environmental illness, any of those things that have to do with autoimmune diseases where your body's fighting itself off. Any um, issues uh, with um, self-destruction, whether it's an addiction, whether it's um, uh, self um, hurting yourself in any way, cutting or... Um, or uh, um, uh, anorexia, bulimia, not taking care of your body in a, in a very destructive way or thoughts of suicide or severe depression or anything like that. Okay, I said all of that so that nobody has to be embarrassed about anything. God wants to heal you. So if any of those things are what you're dealing with, I want you to stand up and come to the front right now.